Hi, this is Carrie Brownstein. This is DJ Premier. This is Darren Aronofsky. You got the Rizzo right here. Rose McGowan. Right here. Aisha Tyler. The Tribe Called Quest. Fred Armisen. Fritz Paul. Javier Munoz. Seth Meyers. Frankie Cosmos. Flying Lotus. Hi, we're Haim, and you're listening to the Talk House Podcast. Ow! Hello, and welcome to the Talk House Podcast. I'm Josh Modell. Today's episode features visionary musician and producer Todd Rundgren in conversation with frequent TalkHouse contributor, Dr. Dog, drummer, and solo artist in his own right, Eric Slick. Now, I don't think Eric would mind me telling you that chatting with Todd Rundgren was sort of a dream come true for him. Like a lot of musicians, Eric truly reveres and appreciates Rundgren's incredible career. It would take me hours to go through his list of accomplishments, which range from pop hits in the 1970s, like Bang on the Drum All Day, to production credits that are unassailable. The dude was behind the boards on everything from Meatloaf's mega-hit Bad Out of Hell to the first New York Dolls album to XTC's Skylarking. His songs have been sampled by Frank Ocean, Charlie XCX, Erica Badu, and many more. Rundgren is also an innovator when it comes to technology and touring. And right now he's in the middle of a virtual tour that's taking him all over the country from the comfort of a stage in Chicago. Each show on his Clearly Human tour will be localized to a different city, and he promises it won't feel like your average webcast. Like Rundgren, Eric Slick is from Philadelphia, as you'll hear, and he's no stranger to musical genre hopping either. Though he's best known as part of Dr. Dog, Slick has also played for some other great acts over the years, and he's quietly built an incredible solo catalog as well. His latest, last year's Wiseacre, is also his greatest, a layered, moody set of songs about, what else? Love. Here's a little bit of Over It. The two get into Philadelphia music history, the internet, and lots more. Enjoy. What part of Philly are you from? Upper Darby. Is that by the Tower Theater? Yeah, Tower Theater. Saw a lot of movies there on my first rock and roll show. I saw at the Tower Theater. What was your first rock and roll show? Some kind of early rock and roll, pre-Beatles thing. And it was mostly, I think, uh, R&B groups like the Monotones. I remember the Monotones. (laughs) They did the Book of Love. Oh, yeah. Well, I wonder, wonder, wonder. I do, oh, who. And, who wrote uh, the book of love? I went with an older friend. And yeah, first time I had seen live performers on a rock and roll performers on a stage and just was fascinated by it. I wasn't even paying that much attention to the music. It just the spectacle of it for some reason was it, it caught my attention did they have like a decent pa system there because my dad always talks about when he went to see the beatles 1966 and they had these like little horse racing speakers like there was nothing as far as pa system went they used what essentially was the regular pa that they did and it had no bass in it really puny coming to <laughs> it. but apparently everyone screamed so much over every over all of it it wouldn't have hurt it anyway my dad said the the phenomenon of just seeing the Beatles was enough for him, but he's like, I couldn't make heads or tails of anything, musically speaking. I went to see Hard Day's Night in a movie theater, and there was so much screaming, you could hardly hear what was going on on stage. So how do you feel? You've lived through pretty vast expanses of stupidity as far as presidents go. How are you feeling today about everything? We really thought George Bush was unqualified. (laughs) And then then this freak accident happened. We'll have to think of it as a freak accident. 
unfortunate side effect that is it, it revealed the dark underbelly of America that's always been there, but didn't feel emboldened until we actually had a black president. And then they started to get real loud mouth about it. Of course, pretending not to. I mean, when Mitch McConnell said, I'm going to make this guy a one-term president, he wasn't thinking at all that he could get away with it because the guy was black. No, <laughs> not at all. You know. I, or as I they know. say, not all Republicans are racist, but if you're a racist, you're a Republican. Absolutely. And I find that to be 100% true 100% of the time. What they call a Republican Party isn't even a political party. It's a criminal enterprise that uses the mechanisms of politics to further its ends. And it wasn't until they found Donald Trump that they found someone so completely corrupt that he would take full (laughs) advantage of the fact that it was a criminal enterprise. Republicans have been liars since before there was liars and and gerrymanderers and vote suppressors. How do you get a minority party that stays in power? By crookedness, essentially, and lying. And and we're still living with that. So while I am... While I'm hopeful, and while the rash I got running up to the election has gone away, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll see what happens. Mitch McConnell is still the same corrupt creep that he always was. I think of him like a lizard or like an evil turtle or something. I think of him as the re- reverse Dorian Gray. Oscar Wilde story about a guy who has a portrait in his attic. And yeah. he's like a really evil bastard. But none of it seems to affect him. It all appears on the portrait that he has in the end. So the portrait gets uglier and uglier and uglier looking, even like sure. hideous, like a corpse looking. The end of the story is that it, if he ever lays eyes on the portrait, it suddenly all comes back to him. He, I think Mitch McConnell is Dorian Gray in reverse. He's got a handsome picture of himself in the attic. <laughs> <laughs> and every evil thing he does appears right on his face. So mo- moving on from politics, you are going to do a virtual tour. And I'm a musician. The vast majority of my income comes from touring. You've been thinking about this for a long time. So did the pandemic lead you to this place where you're like, I can finally fucking do this thing that I've always wanted to do? Well, it wasn't so much that it, that I could do it, but that I had to do it. They, I was supposed to do a tour this past May, like uh, May and June. Then they moved it to like August, September. Then they moved it again a little later in the year. Then they moved it to fe- this February. And when they moved it again, I said, all right, I have to do something. I can't just like be the victim of circumstances and expecting to go out and tour and then nothing happens. So... All of my ideas about alternative ways of delivering the service started to become actually relevant. My initial concepts had more to do with me as a performer and how my travel was affected because of climate change. I tried to get less travel in my touring. Instead of doing a typical tour thing where you you have primary markets and you try to get tie them together with secondary markets and you got to play at least five nights a week. So you take any old gig that you can get <laughs> just, just to, to cover a, a night's worth of expenses. So I changed the whole touring thing to be 
two nights in major markets and then two nights off mm -hmm. and kind of making the audience travel more than I do in a way, <laughs> but also playing nicer venues. But instead of being on a bus all the time, I would fly usually the day of the show. And I found myself ever more waiting for a delayed flight and wondering whether I'm going to get to my gig on time or having a flight canceled and then going through a whole panic routine with my travel agent trying to reroute me to wherever I'm supposed to go. And most of this was because of ever greater number of storms, particularly in the Atlantic. Mm -hmm. So like major hubs like Miami and Atlanta and, and JFK and New York area, they all be getting closed down ever more frequently because of the increasing number of storms. And that isn't even the only effect of, of the climate change. If you wanted to tour California this past summer, that would have been pretty weird because the whole state was on fire. Half of Texas was underwater. This kind of thing is going to happen more and more often. Well, I, yeah. I played a show in uh, Portland, Oregon a couple years ago when there was the big wildfires out there. And we did an outdoor show in Edgefield, Oregon. We all had to wear like gas masks during the show. Oh, I mean, it was dear, yeah. It was insane. And this is even pre-COVID mask. I'm wearing a mask on stage. I'm getting soot all over my drums from the fire. And you also live out in Kauai or you have a place out in Kauai? I live here, yeah. Are you seeing any effects of climate change out there? Well, I imagine there are the, the more uh, macro effects like polar uh, melting and that sort of thing causes the shorelines to change in visible ways. Uh, the normal weather patterns have somehow changed maybe a little bit in our particular location favor. I mean, we were supposed to get a serious hurricane this summer and it just veered off to the north and didn't happen. One of the reasons why I got to move here because there was a, a really terrible hurricane in 1993, the eye of which went right over this island and completely wrecked it. And that's when I thought, oh, I could afford to move here now. So, unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> we haven't had a hurricane since, maybe two for one, but it seems like there have been fewer hurricanes or they haven't really come as close to the islands as they used to. There used to be a major hurricane like every 10 years that would hit somewhere in the islands. So it may be working kind of in the in favor of some places. The weather will be apparently nicer <laughs> because of climate change in some right. places while it gets ever more horrible in other places. I live in Nashville, Tennessee, and even this last winter has been the most brutally cold winter I've ever felt in Nashville, Tennessee. It feels like a Philadelphia winter, which is just so strange. I moved here thinking, oh, I'm going to move here for session work, and it's going to be a lot warmer, and that is, that's not the case because everything is shifting. February in Chicago is always awful, <laughs> and that's where we're going. So we're obviously not going for the weather. What's the game plan for Setlist? Because you, you obviously have a wide breadth of material to choose from. My first touring gig was with a Frank Zappa cover band called Project Object. And uh, Andre, you might, you might know Andre. Andre was my window into, into your solo material. So the first record that I heard of yours outside of like the Naz and the American Dream, which is the stuff that my dad played at the house. <laughs> yeah, the American Dream, you can't get to heaven on the Frankfurt L. Like that was a huge record in our house growing up. I know it's, it's funny. He's from Olney. So it's like he was part of that whole that whole world. But well, it's just nice to know that the record found some success in the home and the band's hometown, at least. Oh, 
Oh, definitely. I mean, my dad played a ton of Philly stuff. My first rock band in Philadelphia growing up was like the Hooters. It's like we had, I yeah. grew up in a, I grew up in a post Eric Bazillion world. I didn't grow up with like the records that my dad had, which was like good, this band called Good God. And like yeah. you had Stanley Clark, you, you had some pretty heavy musicians from Philadelphia. But the records that I became familiar with with you were like Liars. That was on the first tour that I ever did. We were yeah. listening to that with all the old Zappa dudes, which was a trip. And then the last record I checked out was White Knight, which I was blown away by. I feel like you're singing better now than you ever have, personally. I feel great. My voice and my range has stayed pretty steady, maybe even in the past couple of years gained a, a little bit of range. As the record business collapsed, when you stopped <laughs> looking at that as a source of income and you had to play more and more, I found myself on the road singing for months and months at a time. And that's probably helped. It's kind of like going to the gym. And sure. in my life, there were certain periods like when I was first learning how to sing, which was after my first record, I would go on stage and I wouldn't be able to last 20 minutes. Oh, Partly man. because I'd, I, I had performed... I'd, performed as a singer so little, but then I was always writing the songs in a range that I liked to hear, but wasn't actually able to, to sing continuously, like near the top of my range. My wife is a singer songwriter and she told me the same thing. I started making records and she was like, you got to bring it down like an octave. <laughs> she was like, I know you want to sing at the top of your range all the time, but I can tell that you're straining from the audience. So you feel like your voice is getting stronger. I'm also curious, like, Something I really admire about you, and I would put you in the same category as somebody like Zappa or somebody like Prince, where you're progressing with every record. I grew up in a very progressive rock family. And then, like I said, I did the Zappa tour, and then I was touring with Adrian Ballou for a while. So my whole world was kind of like the prog world. But something I always appreciated about you in particular is that I actually felt like you were progressing. Sometimes I, sometimes I would call it regressive rock because I would see these bands coming out with like the fucking capes and singing about castles and wizards and stuff. And that's not necessarily what progressive rock me means to me. Progress is sometimes a, a spiraling thing. It isn't yeah. necessarily linear all the time. So you often have to go revisit previous influences. Sometimes ones that you've never fully exploited before. Like back in the late 80s and the 90s when the industry was transitioning from vinyl to CDs. And we would spend a lot of time in Japan. I've toured Japan like for years and years, so I can still find an audience there. Mm -hmm. And especially in the late 80s when, when I was doing Nearly Human, the, the basis of the, of the upcoming virtual tour. And Japan, they were really flush. And I was producing Japanese artists all the time. And anything American was really inexpensive to them. And the Japanese were just like mental about remastering anything that had ever been on vinyl, onto CDs. Even if it was only a limited run of 500 CDs, they would go back and remaster anything they could find. And one of the things that I got into was fairly early on, it became a brief phenomenon here, but it was the, the bachelor pad music craze. Like city music. You you're know, talking, are you, well, like talking, Esquivel, Martin Denny, and, and the Bossa Nova. Oh, you're talking, you're talking about the American music that they were latching on to. Yeah, this was oh, yeah, remastered yeah. records from the 50s and early 60s when Bossa Nova was hip and mm -hmm. 
and whole bachelor Hugh Hefner be the kind of music Hefner would listen to you know I got it and uh, so just bought up masses of that and a couple years later got approached by I think it was Angel Records which was a subsidiary of Capital and they were doing one-offs with uh, artists who had uh, deep catalogs like pick a different style and revisit your old catalog so I thought, well, I'm way into this bossa nova thing now, so I'll do that. And for the next two years, me and my band were just bossa. We were from Brazil. The tour, we took a tiki bar around with us everywhere that sat about five people, tables all around the stage. And we were in a corner, one corner with a very small sort of stage that you would find in a small tiki bar. And we played three sets. And it was essentially a theatrical presentation. We pretended that we were in Honolulu and that progressive busfuls of tourists would come in, <laughs> come into the club. We'd play a set. They'd toss the club, toss everybody out. Another bunch would come in and they'd be all wow. people from the audience. But we pretend they were tourists. They come in and then the show would end and there'd just be one drunk at the bar hitting on the last girl in the club. Sometimes you go backwards and revisit something that yeah, maybe you had neglected. So the progress isn't always linear, but it is persistent in that I hate doing something that I've already done because what's the point of that? And I hate imitating what other people have done because what's the point of that? What's funny is that like that kind of jumping around genre-wise or trying to get inspired by new things, like... I'm trying to figure out if nowadays that's a hindrance or if it's like a something that's beneficial because whenever I send my music to labels, the number one criticism I hear from a label is like, this is completely inconsistent with all the things that you already do. One label went in so far as to like pull up a PowerPoint presentation of moods and genres. I felt like I was in a focus group for like Crest toothpaste or something. <laughs> um, and I've had, had a somewhat similar experience in that in the old days I got signed. I was in the Bearsville uh, in the Bearsville organization, which essentially was Albert Grossman's sure little Let's empire talk. there, and it yep. started out with artist management, and then he had a label. So I kind of got involved with with Albert Grossman and the Bearsville organization as an engineer producer initially. I was still writing music after the NAS, and I asked them if they could give me a budget just to do a vanity record with no intention of career building or touring or anything like that. I was going to go back and produce more records. And it was really eclectic. There was no real genre thread or anything that ran through it. And I accidentally had a hit single on it. <laughs> and that's when I had to suddenly commit to being a performer. You don't waste a hit single. But the record after that was uh, way different. It was me maturing as a songwriter, and it was much more coherent in a way. And then there was Something Anything, which was almost too far in the songwriterly direction in that I had gotten into a formula, and and I could write a song like I saw the light in 20 minutes. All done. Sure. Moon, yeah. June, Spoon, Moon, June, Spoon, Major six, major seventh, blah, blah, blah. Just was too damn easy. It was like I was working in the Brill building. And that's right. when I did A Wizard of True Star. And that had no genre whatever to it, you know? But it, and it drove the, the guy who was responsible for selling the records crazy. 
Tell me that, nuts, you know. Are you trying to tell me that Zen Archer was not a number one hit song? Because that unfortunately is- <laughs> not. And even just one victory, it's it's well associated with me by now, but at the time it wasn't a single or anything like that. Sure. But at one point, he sent me down to Atlanta to meet with Lee Abrams. And Lee Abrams was a guy who developed he used like the Arbitron rating system to do market analysis, record labels would send him a single and he would have what he considered a typical audience and he'd play it for them and they'd sit there with a dial responding to it like like watching a movie trailer or something like that. Kind of like the same way you would develop cereal. Just market, purely market analysis. You paid him some ridiculous amount of money and then he'd send back a number, like one number and if the number was like 80 or below, <laughs> don't bother spending the money to try and make this a single. And so I went down to meet him and he was going to tell me everything I needed to do to be a hit in, in what was the contemporary market. And wow. I went down with a friend of mine and we were so cynical about it that I, that I swallowed a ball of opium before I went down to see him because <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to numb myself. I had no intention of following anything that he was doing. See, but that was a unique position I was in because I was a successful producer. So right. I never worried about success as an artist. I only thought about, well, what can I do now? As long as it's not repeating myself for somebody else. Right. And that's how I wound up in this habit of making records that way. Have you been producing any artists lately or has it been mostly just the solo stuff? I have, but I'm loath to talk about it. I'm involved with a very, very high-profile artist, but there is so much weirdness around this particular artist that I really don't even want to talk about it. Either way, we can move on. What's your view on the way that we're consuming music? Because something that a lot of my fellow artists and burgeoning songwriters is like, they're kind of just like, what the fuck am I supposed to do about streaming and all these other opportunities that are now arising for us to put our music out there. What's your stance on it? Because there seems to be like a division, especially with older artists where they're like, I'm all for it or I'm completely against it. I realize the distinction between music as an experience and music as a commodity, like back in the 90s when we realized that you could put music on a server. Right. As soon as there were digital devices, sent a gigantic wave of panic through the entire industry. One branch of Sony Records is suing the other branch of Sony Records because the other branch of Sony Records is building consumer devices like MP3 players. The policy of the RIA is no MP3 players, no MP3s, no, 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 no. And the Mm -hmm. policy of the manufacturers is let's make some MP3 MP3 players because this is the future. This is what's going to happen. And indeed it was. The shit started changing as soon as we had the Sony Walkman. So that previous to that, you couldn't have like quality listening experience that you would define unless you did it in your own house. And that was the golden age of music consumption because the business had moved from singles to albums. So artists were getting more ambitious and, and the systems were getting more I guess, affordable and settling down to some standards. And people got more and more into the whole idea of listening to records and committing like to a whole album, to listen to a whole album. 
Right. And that started to go away as soon as we had control over that and could take it out of the house. First thing that happened is it devalued the listening experience because people started using music as wallpaper for other activities. So the result of the audience being able to take more control over the listening experience is what we have today. And right. that meant a sort of a breakdown of that sustained listening thing, listening to a whole album all the way through. People started listening to songs more. It's almost like before LPs now. It's like you had to have enough singles before you actually put out an album. But beyond that, because the actual sales of records is no longer a, the most viable way to make money as a musician, what you were always selling in terms of the record business, a piece of vinyl that was a piece of merchandise. Right. And when you went out on tour, you sold t-shirts, which was merchandise, you know, and more than that, it's branded merchandise. And so what most hyper successful contemporary artists realized is that first thing I'm going to do is call myself a musician. Yep. <laughs> I'm going to sell I'm going to claim to make music, but I don't really care that much about the music. What I really care about is branding my name. Mm-hmm. So the music is really just the commercials, the soundtrack to my brand. And I will sell anything and just use the music as a commercial for my brand. Right. And that's what even like sincerely motivated musicians will have to realize. You won't become rich selling or most musicians will not become rich or even make a healthy living selling through Spotify or something like that. You have to think in terms of, of your brand. Right. And when somebody at, at a record label tells you, oh, well, you have to do this and this and this in order to be successful, you always say, I'm not interested necessarily in having a string of hit singles. One meme is enough to get me <laughs> on the map. It can be the shittiest piece of music in the world. But if it starts a meme, I'm made. It's kind of true. I mean, and then, you know. And then it, once you've got your brand, you can go back and make some serious music if you want. You can put out that atonal string quartet. There's plenty of success stories that started in people's bedrooms and that didn't really involve labels until they already made the impression that they were going to make or, or had already built their brand. And so what is the label good for? The label is good for spending money on your behalf. It's like a bank loan. You well, get that's why that I money. Started, that's why I started Patronet. What they do is they're essentially collecting the money from your fans. Mm-hmm. Whatever they speculate, they'll be able to get from your fans. Right. So you, the whole idea of Patronet, which is now there's something similar called Patreon, you know, although sure. it's not exactly the same thing. But the original Patronet idea was why not go directly to your fans and have them directly underwrite the making of the records. And it becomes a dual exercise in both artist financing and also brand building because all those people now are invested in you. They're not just going out and buying your record. They're actually helping you make the record. I think it's also breeding a new kind of artist where you can put up things like voice memos and demos and drawings. Anything that you create is now fair game for your fan base. Write your little hearts out. And publish it, publish it, make demos of it, or make final products of it. Do it, figure out. I've always said music, it's so competitive and there is so little 
awareness in the public mind for there's only so many artists they can follow, <laughs> that sort of thing, that of don't quit your day job. Just have a yeah. day job. If you want to feel free when you're doing your music and not constantly put upon because it's not making you a living, well, then get a day job. <laughs> just have fun and just have fun making the music. That does echo a lot of things that composers have said time and time again. You think about somebody like Philip Glass, who was driving a taxi cab when Einstein on the Beach, his opera, was debuting at the Met. He was basically racking up the debt, making this extremely advanced minimalist opera. And then someone got in the cab and was like, you share the same name as this famous composer. He's like, uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is just a, a fantastic, fantastic. Well, unless it violates some moral tenet that I have, I very rarely turn down an offer. You know, a job. Of course. So getting back to the virtual tour thing, is there some kind of visual component that's going to go in with the, the live streaming? Like, are you going to get to do things that you never got to do because of just the sheer expense of going on tour? Well, all the, tra all of the travel expense, of course, gets plowed back into the show, but it doesn't mean that the show is less expensive for me to mount. As a matter of fact, it's the most dangerous show I've ever mounted because every other show that I've done we had local promoters who sold tickets and paid a 50% advance on the guarantee to help me find it. So, <laughs> um, so at this point, I'm the promoter. I have to promote 25 shows. Yeah. And the total cost of that is somewhere around a million dollars. I'll be a million dollars in debt by the first <laughs> show. Wow. <laughs> Uh, and the walk-up ratio is completely different when you're doing like a virtual thing. People realize that if you were going to play a venue in their hometown, that there's only a certain number of seats of primo seating, and they're going to rush out and try and get one of those primo seats. But when it's a virtual thing, there's no actual physical seating. Everyone sure. has the same same point of view. And so you're not in such a hurry to rush out and get that. Indeed, if you're in a you know situation, a lot of people find themselves in now, which is waiting for a stimulus check, and you're having a hard time making your basic nut. You're not going to be thinking about entertainment options every day. Maybe when it gets a little bit closer <laughs> to the gig, sure. Okay, I've got the I got the price of a ticket here. I think I'll go for it. And we expect that that'll be the dynamic. It's kind of been the dynamic for most of these online events is that people there'll be a certain amount of great initial in interest but unless you say it's limited then people are going to probably put it off right. and on top of that there's this whole couple of months that we've been through since we announced the tour which was a run-up to the election yeah. the chaos after the election the capital riots the the runoff election in georgia the uh, the inauguration itself, yeah. it wasn't until that moment, I think, that most people sort of thought they could um, ponder on anything else about what the hell was going on in Washington and who is actually going to be the president and, and all that other stuff. I don't think people had the time to get bored. And so now <laughs> they've got time to get bored. So 
like some of the live streams that I've seen and even I've been doing live streams this whole time to sort of stay financially afloat and all that other good stuff. What will set yours apart from like me being, yeah, obviously most of them are done in here with me with an acoustic guitar, like <laughs> honking away at my songs. But what, what about your show is going to be pushing the envelope in some way? Well, we have engaged a, an event space in Chicago that's uh, fairly sizable. Uh, in other words, we've got plenty of stage room. It won't look like we're in a TV studio or anything like that. And we're dressing it as if it's a proscenium stage, even though it's just a more general purpose space. So it will look like a venue. We are doing, we're going through these localization efforts to convince ourselves, essentially, that we're in a different town every time we do a show. So everything in the backstage area will be festooned with the local memorabilia posters sports memorabilia local newspapers if there's some music that's you know characteristic of a particular town we'll probably sure. be running that back there we're um setting all the clocks to the local time for the show that we're playing mm -hmm. so even though we're in chicago all the shows will say all the clocks we set an hour ahead. So mm -hmm. that we, That's great. That's perfect. So that we're thinking already New York time, or we're thinking already LA time. And we are, we're unraveling now the complications around my idea for catering, which is essentially <laughs> if, if we weren't in these perilous COVID times, uh, a lot of restaurants would be open and maybe amenable to helping us do my catering idea, which is more or less a nationwide DoorDash thing. Huh. You know, so we we call the fans and say, like, what is the most representative food and the most representative eatery in your town? <laughs> Ideally, we would get food from that place and have it sent in, and that would be our catering. So we'd be eating the same food that the locals could wow. be. But I think we, we may be able to do that in some instances, but probably in a lot of instances we won't. So we hope maybe to, if the restaurants would give up their recipe for the food, we have a big <laughs> we have a big kitchen and a venue and we'll cook it ourselves. There you go. Everyone who buys a ticket, you should just ship them a hummus platter so they could really know what it feels like to be on tour. And yeah, the back of the of the actual stage itself is a high res video wall. So previous to the show, we'll probably turn on the 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 stream about a half an hour before typically when you would open the doors to the venue right, right. so people can come in there'll be little murmuring noises in the audio people milling around that sort of thing and up on the screen will be essentially a slideshow of all of like landmarks and highlights of that particular locality running for right. like 20 minutes and then probably the last mi 10 minutes before we come on stage we put up what is a picture as much as I could acquire such because it was kind of sometimes difficult to find the images, but a local venue, the actual proscenium of the local venue that we would have. Uh, so great. unfortunately, Philly isn't on this because it's one of the territories we had the geofence out. Oh, uh, shit. I'm, yeah, I'm going out on a live tour in October, fingers crossed. Yeah, and, for both of uh, us. And that's all promoted essentially by Live Nation, who was supposed mm -hmm. to do the tour last May and then the tour in the summer and then what have been in the tour of the fall and the tour in February. Now it's moved to October. But 
in order for them to allow me to do this, they wanted certain territories to be kind of yeah. not promoted to, I guess, right. to not promoted to. So essentially, we don't claim to have a gig in Philadelphia, <laughs> but so go to Baltimore. Just there you go. Drive there. What's it's, your favorite place like to you play? Can buy, you can buy a, show, a ticket to pretty much any any of the shows that we're doing as if you had traveled to that place, just with the realization that while you're watching the show, we're going to think we're in Albany or we're going to think that we're in Indianapolis. <laughs> right. What's your favorite place to play in Philly? Uh, probably the nicest place, of course, is the Kimmel Center, which I think I played with Ringo. I I wouldn't be able to sell that out myself. Always yeah. nostalgic for the Tower Theater, even though when you're backstage, you're wondering when the whole building's going to collapse. <laughs> They've man, had to take the tower off the tower because they thought it was going to fall on somebody. Well, it costs so much money to play there, too, because I think it's just a, an insurance nightmare to play at the Tower Theater. I think it's like, yeah, the, the stage just might fall on you when you're playing. Yeah, uh, it's pretty decrepit. Even before I saw my very first rock and roll show there, probably around 1960, you know, <laughs> yeah. I'd be going to the movies there with my parents, you know, since I, since before I could remember in the, and the theater was probably built in the 20s or 30s. Where where did you play in the 60s and 70s when you were coming up, like with the Naz? Like, because even when I was growing up in Philly, it's like we had Dobbs and we had a couple of other small clubs, but like, and the TLA. Like, if you really made it, you made the, the you played the TLA or the Troc. But like, my parents always talk about going to the original Electric Factory, the one that like Frank Rizzo would bust up. But yeah. what what was what was what was it like in the late 60s and 70s doing rock in Philly? My evolution as a musician obviously started in, in Philly, discounting everything that I went through in school and through high school. But when I got out of high school, I had no band. I don't recall that I even had an instrument at the time. <laughs> I was just like on the street. But I was going to form a band with a friend of mine, and we met up in Ocean City. Hmm. And, and we heard about this Philly phenomenon called Woody's Truck Stop. They were playing a, a music festival, Summer Stock Festival, which is a, like a tent. And the headliner was The Birds. And there was a, one of the opening acts was The Shadows of Night, which who had done a, a version of Gloria that was a hit in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And then like, the very opening act was Woody's Truck Stop. And I knew about Woody's Truck Stop because when I was still in high school, probably in my senior year, there was a little article in Time magazine about a kid who beat the system when it came to getting your hair cut. <laughs> and his name was Alan Miller. And, and he was a straight-A student. He was a straight-A student, but the, the school kept hassling him about his hair. And he said, I can't cut my hair. I'm in a band. And the band was <laughs> Woody's Truck Stop. And essentially, he went, over, went to court over it, and the judge said, okay, he can't go to class, but you still have to teach him. So you got to put a speakerphone in his house. And so there was a picture of him with his long hair and a speakerphone and him doing his homework or something like that. So I knew about Woody's Truck Stop. So we went to see the band and they were pretty, they put on a really good show and they were musical and played blues, which was all I was playing through high school. Right. And so we heard that they were playing a gig at a place called The Artist Hut in Philadelphia. And this was the first kind of, no, the artist hut and the second fret were the two first gigs in, in Philadelphia 
the two downtown venues where actual progressive music or folk music or anything that was happening was playing, especially in the local scene. You would get national acts at the second fret because that was part of the national folk circuit. But the artist hut was kind of tinier. It had a capacity of maybe 80 people, something like that. So we went to see them and they were transitioning from their current drummer. They couldn't find a drummer. So the guy that I was with, he was a drummer, like play, could play like Buddy Rich. And they were so impressed with him that they asked him that night to join the band. And he said, wow. well, I got my friend over here as a guitar player. And if you let him join the band too, all right, I'm in the band. And that's how my musical career started, right there in the artist's hut. Wow. But we would go in there and play like Yardbirds movie music and stuff like that and last sure. one show. Wow. Thinking that it would be a gig that we could do regularly like the Beatles in, in Hamburg. Sure. But everyone would be like, like these old, got really old guys, generations older at the bar, just nursing a drink and hating <sighs> the loud music. <laughs> Those were the oh, kind of God. venues that were open until the electric factory. And that became kind of like kind of the center of everything. And then gradually other small venues. I remember the when I first saw The Who and I first saw Cream was a Murray the K show at the Paramount Theater in Brooklyn. We all drove up to see it because we thought, when are we ever going to see that? And there was eight, ten artists on the on the bill and Wilson Pickett and mm -hmm. and Mitch Ryder were the co-headliners. They got to play two numbers each, The Who and The and cream and the who just knocked us out we thought god this is what this is what rock and roll really is smashing your guitar every night yeah you know? of course and the drums that's this is where everybody has to go at this point was what you were thinking or even even cream they went to some trouble they had their guitars all painted up and they yeah. all got perms mm -hmm. eric clapton had a giant afro you know it's, in silk clothing with long scarves and stuff like that. It was, it was showbiz. But the thing that we hated the most about the show is Jackie the K, Mary the K's wife, who would come out with a bunch of Vegas dancers and do one of these Las Vegas dance routines right in the middle of a rock and roll show. Yeah. And we said, the one thing that isn't a part of rock and roll is dancers. No dancers. Yep. So go buy your, your Beyonce ticket or whatever, but that's not rock and roll. Well, it's funny, like another one of my dad's favorite concerts that he saw at Temple University was Hendrix. The bill was Cactus, Grateful Dead, and then the Manhattan Transfer, and, <laughs> and, 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 and then Jimi Hendrix. And the, he said the entire crowd just turned around when the Manhattan Transfer went on. They were like, <laughs> no. No, this isn't rock and roll. Sorry. I mean, Manhattan Transfer, whatever floats your boat. I mean, if you like the Manhattan Transfer, great. If I do. You don't, whatever. Yeah. yeah I they're do great. Like but, uh, but, uh, but I'm saying within the context of that gig, maybe it was a little bit... Well, the gigs were way more eclectic in those days. But when the music scene started to explode, like in the late 60s, early 70s, when everything was going all hippie, audience almost didn't care who was playing. They would just go. Yeah, you didn't hear half the people on the bill. You just go to the Fillmore. It'd be any weird combination of stuff, but you went every Friday to the Fillmore. It was part of your ritual. But I recall with the NAS doing some incredibly weird gigs. We'd be on a, I think we did a, a gig in Detroit, and it was James Cotton, 
the Hello People, who essentially would mime act with <laughs> pop songs and and with mime skits in between. Uh, Bring that back. The Stooges. Wow. The Stooges and the Nats. Wow. I mean, you couldn't get much more eclectic than that. I mean, you would just mm. see things with like Odetta and and the Grateful Dead, all of those weird kinds of combinations uh, of things. And everybody, it, at least in those days, kind of, they were interested in those odd acts that they had never heard of before, especially in a white audiences being exposed to black artists. B.B. King suddenly be looking out and seeing like nothing but white faces in his audience. <laughs> Imagine what a weird kind of transformation that that is from playing just little juke joints for the same audience you've always been playing with. And then this whole revolution and evolution in music where suddenly you're welcome into these gigantic venues with every other artist in the world. It was a a golden era in music and festivals are kind of like a way to try and recapture that what essentially would happen in one night <laughs> in a place right. like the Fillmore. Yeah. Of course. I mean, those old Fillmore bills were like, yeah, Miles Davis and Steve Miller band and then Neil Young, Crazy Horse. It was just, yeah, yeah I look back at those bills and I'm just like, man, I was, I was definitely born in the wrong time because those tickets were like a dollar fifty. The ticket was always the same price. It wasn't yeah. like because so and so at the top of the bill, suddenly everything's twice as much. No, nobody first of all, nobody was carrying a whole Broadway show with them either. I, I I guess the last thing we could do is just do you have any anything else new coming out? Do you have a new record or anything? Sometime in the next couple of weeks I'll have another single coming out on on my Space Force project. This one will be a collaboration with Sparks. Oh great. I love Sparks called awesome. Fandango, and the only question now is whether I'm going to have the time to make a video for it. So right now, just struggling with an idea, because like two weeks ago, I was thinking, this has got to be something political. And now I don't even want to think about the freaking guy. <laughs> yeah. <so. laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening to the Talk House podcast, and thanks to Todd Rundgren and Eric Slick for chatting. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to TalkHouse on your favorite podcast delivery service and check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and elsewhere at TalkHouse. This week's episode was produced by Kevin O'Connell and the TalkHouse theme was composed and performed by The Range. I'm Josh Modell. See you next week. Hold up. 